Happy Friday. It's good to be back with you in the flesh. I'm Jessica Burbank, and I'm here with Amber Athey. How's it going, Amber? Great. We're back in black, as they say. We're back in black. <laughs> it's very Amy Winehouse. I was listening to Amy Winehouse on the way here, so that's perfect. The, I was thinking ACDC. You can tell the generational uh, divide. Oh, yeah. Back to black is Amy. Yeah, that's fine. But we're filling in for Robbie and Bray. They're slacking off, I guess, having a, an extra long weekend this Friday. So let's get into it. Amber, what's going on today? Sure. A federal judge has sentenced Stuart Rhodes, founder of the right-wing extremist group The Oath Keepers, to serve 18 years in prison following his conviction on seditious conspiracy charges for his role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. This is the longest prison term assigned to a figure involved in that day. Here's what Rhodes' attorneys have to say about his sentencing. <laughs> I think that's a huge question. Um, look, in terms of leader of January 6th, there were 10,000 plus people on the Hill that day. And it was uncontroverted evidence that Mr. Rhodes with uh, the co-conspirator indicted now, Kelly Sorrell, they weren't even on the Hill when this entire situation started. I, I, I don't think it's up to me to point the finger and place blame on ultimately any given individual. I know that there is a large swath of society that intends to and will be pointing blame to the very top of what was the American society at the time. And I'll leave it to them to do that. We don't have a dog in that fight. Our dog in the fight was Mr. Rhodes. This is a year and a half now cap ended into this with an 18 year sentence and there will be appellate issues. So sounds like they're going to appeal. I, for one, was pretty surprised at just how heavy the sentence was, especially considering Rhodes never actually entered the Capitol that day. I guess they're claiming that he had pre-planned some kind of event with the Oath Keepers. But just based on what I'm reading, the evidence seems a little thin. Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's a weak defense if it's true that, that he was partaking in the planning, right? If someone writes the blueprints to construct the building but isn't the one building it, did he have a role in making the building? Yeah, I would say a pretty big one. He's the one who, who made the plans for it. So I don't know if that's a strong defense. If he was someone who planned and inspired and organized people to go to the Capitol that day, what really struck me about this clip is actually the white suit. It's really giving like mob attorney <laughs> vibes. Um, that's, yeah, that's not what you want from your attorney that's defending you from seditious conspiracy. He um, shows up in a white suit. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty. At it's first glance, I thought me. it was Kevin Spacey. That was his mm. lawyer, and I was like, that's also not good. So That would um, be fun. I think we should just, you know, commit to the demise of American politics and make <laughs> it as entertaining as possible for everyone involved. Well, might as well. I mean, that's what Trump 2024 is going to be. It'll just be yeah. uh, probably a comedy show um, in probably the best way possible. But um, I was looking at some of the statements that the prosecutors were talking about that he apparently made in connection with supposedly planning January 6th. Mm -hmm. And I think what's weird to me is that they repeatedly say that he was questioning the results of the election and kind of mouthing off about how there was going to be a civil war, which was kind of a running theme along the January 6th protesters, at least the ones who were the first to kind of rush the Capitol. But it doesn't sound like outside of that there was much of an intent to actually foment a riot on that day. I didn't see any statements from him, for example, where they were saying that let's organize the Oath Keepers to rush the Capitol building and we'll stop the certification of the election results. So it, I, I kind of feel like they're making an example out of this guy. I know they also denied him uh, bail because he has an underground tunnel system under his house, 
but the tunnels don't go anywhere. And as a kind of a nutty prepper adjacent person myself. Oh, we're learning about Amber. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm exposing myself. But I was like, ah, like yeah. tunnels under your house. I don't hate it, you know. <laughs> you were like, he's fine. Yeah, he's I was fine. like, that's I have normal. Too. Everybody, you guys don't have tunnels? What are right. you talking about? But I, I think what makes this case especially interesting, the timing of it. I mean, where were the convictions right after January 6th? Yeah, it's been a. Not only that, last week we covered them saying there were hundreds of federal agents at the Capitol, and we can't show the footage. It seems that this case, they're going to need to show some footage and say, you know, he wasn't there at the Capitol. This is him leaving if he was there earlier at the rally. I mean, maybe we'll get some stuff admitted into evidence because of this case that otherwise we wouldn't see. Uh, but of course, they have this uh, defense that they always have where it's like, oh, well, it's not safe for the public if we release this information. It's, it's sensitive information. But this coming out right after they make this statement, there were hundreds of federal agents there, and that's why we can't release the footage, seems fishy to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's a really great point, especially considering after Tucker Carlson played a lot of that footage on his Fox News show, they ended up yeah. letting Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman, out of prison early. He was supposed to serve, I think, several years, if not four or five years, and then they released him um, because the clips showed that he was not involved in any of the actual violent actions. He was basically just trespassing. Um, and not to mention the fact that Ray Epps, this random guy who lives in the Midwest who was shouting on camera that people should storm the Capitol building and actually did storm the Capitol building, or at least admitted to being in there, has not been charged with anything. So the FBI claims that he's not one of theirs, yet Stuart Rhodes gets 18 years. Ray Epps, who was encouraging people the day before, gets nothing. It's all so bizarre. Yeah, the inconsistency in prosecuting everyone involved in January 6th. And then we have elected officials like Marjorie Taylor Greene after it happened was like, well, if I did it, it would have been armed, which was the most unhinged <laughs> response you could have to an attempted insurrection on the Capitol. And so you have folks in high positions of power, Trump encouraging the whole thing, Merrick Garland saying, eh, maybe I won't do actually anything at all about this, nothing in the short term. And then in the long term, when he announces his bid for president, I'll say, well, now we can't do anything because it would seem political. It's just so weak how they've approached the whole January 6th thing. And it's just created a recipe where I think if people wanted to do it again, they would be more likely to do it again because they saw what a mess it was and how few people actually ended up getting prosecuted. As for me, I, I have the opposite tack on this, which is that it's, it's uh, kind of stunning to me how aggressive the sentencing has been for these people, considering that we have had riots all throughout the summer of 2020 where people similarly stormed state houses. We had individuals creating an autonomous zone in Seattle and Portland and keeping police and emergency vehicles out of it, basically hijacking parts of city streets. And there's been seemingly no similar uh, level of prosecution of those individuals, not to mention this guy just last week who was ramming the White House with his car, claiming that he wanted to, quote, get to the White House, seize power and be put in charge of the nation, had his charges downgraded. Now he only has a single count of depredation of property. Um, I mean, there's just a disconnect, I think, in terms of how this DOJ is going after people who are doing essentially the same thing, but happen to be on different sides of the political aisle. Yeah, I have a hard time like assigning the same moral weight 
to, you know, the riots or even the protests and the uprising in 2020. We just had the third anniversary of George Floyd's murder. And so a lot of people are reflecting on what went down in the country and the millions of people that were in the streets there. And I think about the quote, you know, a, a riot is the voice of the unheard. Was January 6th a riot? I think it was an attempted insurrection, an attempt to take over the United States government to prevent, you know, the due process, the transfer of power to Joe Biden as president uh, and the counting of the electoral votes, right? That was their intent. Why do they feel unheard? They feel unheard because they're in a political minority in the country, because they lost. I feel like that's something different than if you're black and you grew up in America and you've watched people who are unarmed black men get murdered by the police and you've watched your family struggle to get by, you've endured racism your entire life in this country and finally, after so many unarmed black men had been shot and so many people came to their defense, it's, it's a moment where things need to change. We're not being heard. We've tried to do things the peaceful way and protest peacefully. It's time to get in the streets and burn some stuff. I think like that's different. <laughs> this is exactly the double standard I'm talking about though, right? Like because you agree with their cause, you're saying that it's acceptable for them to commit violence, but it's not acceptable for people to storm the Capitol because they believe that the election was rigged due to the changing of rules at the last minute in terms of who was allowed to vote. And like all the black, are black men dying, it's less than 12 a year. I mean, the idea that this is some mass epidemic is just not reflective of reality. I think uh, to say that it's just because I agree with it, maybe, you know, that's not the case. I think it's that uh, the issues are different. What they're protesting is different. One group of folks, the guy they wanted to win lost the election. The other group of folks, have endured centuries of violence in the United States and have endured chattel slavery and now endured, endured an era of Jim Crow and police violence. So I think the issues are just different. It's just not comparable, the reason for the rioting to me. But we've got to move on to the next story. We're going to have more rising after this. The White House and Republican lawmakers are inching closer and closer to closing a deal that would raise the national debt limit for two years while imposing caps on discretionary spending not related to military or veterans. Also doing so for two years, according to The New York Times. The deal would allow the GOP to say they were reducing some federal spending and also allow Democrats to say they saved most domestic programs from major cuts. The deal, if agreed upon and enacted, would raise the government's borrowing limit for two years past the 2024 presidential election. And in exchange for raising the debt limit, Republicans' demand to cut some federal spending would be met, the Times reports. Washington Post reporter Jeff Stein tweeted yesterday, if it, the deal holds, big if, we are looking at essentially flat funding for domestic programs like anti-poverty, rental aid, transit, science, etc. I had been expecting a major cut based on everything in the prior few days. Yeah, what a mess. What an absolute mess. I see this as Democrats being entirely weak. Um, <laughs> I feel the same about Republicans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's absurd. The whole notion of like using the debt limit as a bargaining chip to say, all right, I don't like what the prior Congress budgeted. So I'm going to say, guess what? We had no more new dollars to the economy, which is unnecessary. We've raised the debt limit 78 separate times since 1960. Most governments don't have a debt limit. They issue debt as needed to fund their public spending, and they don't think twice about it. The fact that we have this at all 
is simply it was an accounting uh, necessity a few years ago, like uh, over half a century ago. It was just like, all right, how can we consolidate all of our public spending into one account and keep a record of it? Now they're like, hey, we're going to make legislation about this so that we actually have to vote for it to be raised in order to have new spending. And it's like getting a credit card bill and saying, I don't like what I've spent money on, so I'm gonna renegotiate where this spending is going. It's absurd. I feel like my frustration with the Republican Party is whenever they actually have real power, they don't enact these spending cuts that they claim are a central part of their party platform. They kick the football down the road, or that's not the right analogy, kick the can down the road mm -hmm. and save it for this sort of show-offy, last-minute, hold out kind of deal making uh, scenario and it's like okay well you know the first few years of the Trump administration the first two years y'all had control of Congress you could have hmm. in addition to the tax cuts also tried to cut spending so that we didn't end up with this massive deficit under Trump and instead they just waited until this last minute moment where obviously they weren't going to get anything substantial out of it anyway because Biden was so resistant to the idea of tying the debt limit to any cuts whatsoever. So I, it just feels to me like they always do this sort of last minute bargaining chip kind of nonsense and it's hard to take it seriously. That's interesting. Yeah, they're like, we're doing it because we have to, because the debt's too high. We have to make these cuts. I think the reason Trump didn't do it under his administration is very straightforward, and it's because cutting Social Security, not very popular. Cutting benefits, not very popular. Shutting down the government and saying we have to shut it down because we can't raise the debt limit. We have too much debt. We've been irresponsible financially as a nation. Oh my God. Now we have no choice. Our hand is forced in making these cuts. It's a little bit easier to tell people that that's the narrative. But it's not so easy when you say, we're not going to touch the $858 billion that we give to the military, but you know we might not be able to make good on treasury bonds. We might not be able to make good on social security checks. So we're going to starve grandpa and grandma, but you know, we're going to keep the nukes. We're going to keep our military spending. Like that's absurd. That hypocrisy, I think, makes it very clear that this is about a political agenda of austerity, of cutting social programs, uh, which I think your, your point is right. If they want to do it and Republicans want to cut public spending, they should do it in a regular legislative session and say, this is what we stand for. This is what we want as a party. And I think the reason they don't is because it's unpopular. Right. And there's a way to package it, too, in a way to have reformed spending that maybe leads to cuts that doesn't leave people out in the cold, right? Like there's way to reform these programs in ways that they're more efficient, which saves money without actually reducing the level of care and aid that people are getting from the social safety net. And there's also tons of waste, fraud and abuse in the federal government just by matter of it being a massive bureaucracy. I mean, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars on bizarre research programs involving like puppies getting AIDS and just really weird Weird stuff. Um, we learned a lot of it from the releases from the NIH when people were investigating COVID, some of the weird medical experiments that they were doing. And yeah, these are small potatoes, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars when you compare it to the trillions of dollars that we actually spend in the federal budget. But I feel like it would be much more politically popular and feasible if Republicans were focusing on these areas of common agreement for where to save money, as opposed to giving this perception that they're going to reduce people's social security checks, which obviously most people reasonably are not in support of. So you support cuts in spending. Like you think we should reduce the national debt. I'd like to, yeah. but I, I, it's not 
for me, reducing spending is not like the, the means to an end. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think it's an intrinsic good. Okay. I would prefer it because I like to save taxpayers money and mm. it is kind of outrageous to me how much we waste. But I also am in favor of certain social programs, um, especially pro-family programs. I'm a huge fan of Marco Rubio's proposals to increase child tax credits, to increase paid family leave, to give stipends to new mothers, for example. So I think our understanding of why we spend money from the federal government kind of needs to change and prioritize taking care of people, encouraging people to have families, encouraging people to buy homes, all of these things that we think of when we envision the American dream. Yeah, I think that that's a good point about what our spending priorities should be. I like the analogy. I don't know. You can't really call it an analogy. It's just descriptive that a budget is uh, a testament to your morals. What do you value? And when we look at the economy, there are so many gaps where the market is not addressing needs, things that we all value. Uh, it's important to understand the difference of, of things we value, things we get utility from, things we like spending on that are our priorities, not dollar value, right? It's not very profitable to take care of people who are sick and have sick care uh, or elderly care. There's a huge gap in the market where there are a lot of people who are older who are not getting the care that they need and their kids are busy working by necessity and they can't care for their parents in the same way we see in other countries. That's a problem. That's not something the market's going to address. That's something where the government should be stepping in and saying, okay, it's worthwhile to spend public dollars on something like this. It's actually good for the economy to spend public dollars on investing in sustainable infrastructure, uh, rebuilding our roads, high-speed rails, investing in education so that we have a trained workforce, not just education in the form of higher education universities, but trade schools as well. So when they talk about more public spending as if it's always a bad thing, what is the government for, if not to organize the deliverance of public goods? That's like why we have a government in the first place is because we said, well, like if Amber and I decide we want our kids to have a school and we both decide, all right, let's hire someone as a teacher and pay them, that would not be as quality of an education as if we got everybody in the block together and we said, let's pool our resources and make schools. That's how the first schools came to be. And then, of course, we decided, let's get more serious about this. Let's have this be a part of our, our official government. Let's have the government provide public education. We call it public schools, and we all pool our resources together in the form of taxes. We've gotten to the point where we have to convince elected officials what the government is for, that the government should achieve its intended purpose. And that is so backwards, and that's really underneath the entire debt ceiling debate is what are public dollars for? Yeah, and I'm definitely not in the camp of any time we increase spending for a certain program that that is intrinsically bad, right? It depends yeah. on what it's for. And what frustrates me is we end up, the way that we do these spending packages, like if we could separate out every piece of federal legislation as it relates to spending and vote on those on a line item basis, there would be so much less boondoggle nonsense. I mean, right now we pass these spending packages like the infrastructure bill contains all of these kickbacks to certain Congress people and senators for their districts that has nothing to do with infrastructure whatsoever. Just because of the way that the process is working nowadays and the way that they've sort of created the snowball effect where things that are totally unrelated to each other get 
jammed into one piece of massive, like 3,000 page legislation. It's like people don't even know what they're voting for anymore. And I feel like we would have much more efficient, effective social programs if we took them on a line item basis and actually understood where those dollars were going. Yeah. And that's what we're at the risk of right now, with Janet Yellen saying things like, well, we're going to have to make some priorities about uh, which things don't get funded. We'll maybe prioritize Social Security over making good on the Treasury bonds or what have you. That's not under the purview of the executive branch of the United States. The president has tried in the past uh, to item by item approve things in the budget. And the Supreme Court said no. This is up to Congress. You don't actually have the power to do this. And so Yellen, by saying we're going to make some budgetary priorities, that's unconstitutional. If this goes back to the Supreme Court, I hope to God the Supreme Court does not say, actually, yeah, you guys can decide uh, you know, which things you're going to prioritize. The 14th Amendment says that uh, there is a duty by the executive uh, to handle the public debts, that public debts are legitimate. They can raise the debt limit uh, through the power of the 14th Amendment and go to the Treasury and, and the Fed and say, actually, you do have to issue these bonds to fund this spending. They could do that, but what they can't do is decide what to, what to spend on and what to default. On. The idea that we have to default by necessity is also like such a big misconception that I hear right now. People are on like TikTok and social media platforms right now saying the government's running out of money, the Treasury's running out of dollars. That's not what's happening. They're defaulting because they want to default. The US government will never run out of its own currency. Alan Greenspan, the former chair of the Federal Reserve, has said this. Warren Buffett has said this. And Fitch right now. And Trump, saying, I think, right? Trump has said this as well. <laughs> And Fitch is saying we're going to downgrade the, the U.S. government's credit rating because they're defaulting by choice. The U.S. government will never run out of dollars. They can press a button and credit an account. They should have a, a AAA plus credit rating. They're defaulting by necessity as a political tool at the expense of working people. Well, I, for one, am shocked that TikTok would ever have political misinformation. misinformation. <laughs> yeah, that's really stunning to me. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis responded to former President Donald Trump yesterday over his COVID attacks on him. Let's listen. I think he did great for three years, but when he turned the country over to Fauci in March of 2020, that destroyed millions of people's lives. And in Florida, we were one of the few that stood up, cut against the grain, took incoming fire from media, bureaucracy, the left, even a lot of Republicans, had schools open, preserved businesses. And so Florida, since COVID, has outperformed virtually any state in the country. When people look back, you know, that 2020 year uh, was not a good year for the country as a whole. This comes after Trump said DeSantis, quote, didn't do well on COVID. He had more deaths than almost every country in Florida. I hate to say it because Florida is my state, but he did not do well while appearing on the Full Send podcast last month. DeSantis also slammed Trump for the debt numbers throughout his presidency. We're 31 trillion in debt, and he added almost 8 trillion in debt in just four years as president. Mom and dad are fighting. Uh, <laughs> help. <laughs> um, 
This is, I don't know, it's kind of funny to have him be like, oh, well, he raised the debt so much during his presidency, and then Trump to say, well, like, DeSantis killed a bunch of people in Florida, the numbers were really high. It's just like, they were on the same team so recently that it's it's just weird seeing them fight. Yeah, like it's so classic, though. I mean, anyone who goes against Trump pretty much is going to get this treatment. Um, although mm -hmm. I will say, obviously, DeSantis is going to get it more aggressively because he's yeah. pretty much the only legitimate threat to Trump winning mm -hmm. the nomination in the Republican Party. But I would say if you're Trump, you should try to stay away from the COVID stuff because that's the one area where I think Ron DeSantis actually kind of has him beat in terms of conservative policy because Trump did disagree with Fauci on the idea of closing the border from China early on in the pandemic. But he pretty much outsourced his pandemic policy the rest of the time to Fauci, whereas DeSantis had beaches open in Florida and schools open within a couple of weeks, maybe months, on the school front. Um, but he keeps trying to say, like, oh, DeSantis did a terrible job on COVID and comparing it to New York. That is, like, the worst comparison you can make because New York was a nightmare. By the end of the pandemic, Florida was outperforming New York in pretty much every category. There was the huge nursing home scandal with what Governor Cuomo did with trying to put sick people back in nursing homes with the most vulnerable populations. So I just don't think that's a winning message for Trump. Um, I think what he should do instead, I was talking about this with some friends last night, is if he wants to maybe give DeSantis some credit for his COVID policy, but say, that doesn't make a president. Instead, I would be happy when I win the nomination and win the election to appoint you as my NIH director. Mm, that's interesting. I think DeSantis probably shot himself in the foot when he decided to lie about the COVID deaths in the country. I mean, he had his own state auditor look at the numbers and say, yeah, you said that there were far less deaths than there actually were uh, in the state of Florida. I think DeSantis needs to answer for that at some point in his bid for the presidency because yeah, he can make fun of Trump for liking Fauci, right? Their base hates Fauci. So whenever he mentions Fauci, it's like, oh, well, Trump, you know, had Fauci in that last year. That's going to hit for the base. I don't think that's something that either of them should be fighting about, because it seems that it's going to piss off people on all sides of the political spectrum because of both of their history handling COVID. The debt thing is really interesting, because you're right that they don't say their plan or, like, what's their side of things. It's just... He's the sanctimonious. He's Meatball Ron. He did this. He did this. It's like, when are we going to get what your plan for the country really is beyond Make America Florida, which is the most absurd slogan ever? But we really need some kind of policy platform from either of these two guys. Yeah, I mean, I would say DeSantis is probably doing a better job at articulating what he would do as president. But uh, the issue with, I think, the whole Republican nomination process right now for Trump specifically mm -hmm. is that a huge part of his success in 2016 was that he was running as an outsider and he was able to point to the Republican establishment and say, here are all the things that I think they're doing wrong. Here are all the ways that I think they're hurting the American people, particularly the working class. Here's what I'm going to do differently. We're going to basically change the Republican Party from the inside out if I get elected. And he did that to some extent. He had terrible decisions in terms of personnel and who he surrounded himself with in the White House that made a lot of his agenda really ineffective. But now he basically is the establishment. He has the RNC paying his legal bills. He was, again, already in office for four years and failed to accomplish a lot of what he said he was going to do on the campaign trail. DeSantis has a proven track record in Florida. 
The fundamental difference I see between these two guys is that DeSantis is not a good retail politician. He's mm. super awkward. He's like kind of autistic. He can't talk to people on a personal basis. I mean, I don't know if you saw this video of him going to like a pizza shop or whatever, and he's mm -hmm. trying to shake hands with people. He asks a guy what his name is, and his response is not nice to meet you. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, come on, have like a little personability. Um, and Trump is entertaining. He's funny. He's mm -hmm. able to talk about. Um, Right now, like the big thing in the Republican Party is anti-wokeness. Trump is able to talk about it in a really funny, easy to understand way. DeSantis is kind of wonky on it. And when you're talking about a national election campaign, the presence really matters. DeSantis can't meme in the same way. Right. And I think it, it might be intentional, right? I don't know if this is a situation where I'm like, oh, well, Trump is so funny and willing to say whatever, and that gives him the upper hand, but also, it's a primary, not a general. So what's in my mind is, is DeSantis giving himself the upper hand by saying, I'm not going to stoop to that level. I'm going to be the predictable professional guy who plays by the rules. Who is someone who likes a candidate that plays by the rules? The leaders of the, of the party, the establishment, yeah. people with money and power, they want someone who plays by the rules because they write the rules. They want someone they can control. And so if he wins over people with power and influence, I mean, Elon Musk seems to be in his corner already, seems that the party establishment, the Republicans would like DeSantis over Trump because he's predictable and controllable. And so they could rig the primary in his favor. Primary elections are not uh, regulated by the same election laws as general elections. It's considered party business. So what the party leaders want might matter more than what's popular with the public. Yeah, there is definitely this perception among certain parts of Trump's base that DeSantis is the establishment candidate. And I think they have a point because when he was talking about launching his campaign, one of his first meetings was with major donors of the party as opposed to a grassroots type rally. He launched his campaign on a Twitter space with Elon Musk, who he presumably is trying to groom to donate to his campaign or support it in some way, as opposed to doing the typical um, speech in Iowa or New Hampshire. Um, he made it more inaccessible for people who aren't super online social media nerds. Um, so I just, it's weird to me that he kind of simultaneously is attacking Trump for being the insider now because he was going along with Fauci and all of these other public health bureaucrats, while also making a concerted effort to court the GOP donor class as opposed to building grassroots support, which he has plenty of that he can build off in Florida. But it's hard to maximize that to a national scale. And that's going to be his biggest challenge. Um, According to people I know close to the campaign, DeSantis is a huge micromanager, and you can't operate like that when you're talking about a national campaign. It just doesn't work. You can't constantly be in every meeting about which specific ad buys you're going to have in South Carolina, right? That mm, is how yeah. that kind of campaign just falls off the tracks really, really quickly. Yeah, I, Matt Gates was trying to tell DeSantis, you know, when you go to these campaign events, right, be likable at the top of your page. It seems he's thrown out all of that advice. <laughs> I don't know. Does writing be likable help, though? <laughs> it's like, be likable. If only I knew how to be likable. Right? That's kind of like an innate, intrinsic thing. I yeah. don't think you can teach that. No, no, not at all. He doesn't have that. We'll be back with more Rising right after this.
The search for the origin of COVID-19 continues, at least for the mainstream media. An article in The Atlantic published this week made the case that there is no evidence strong enough to end the debate over the origins of the pandemic and that prior beliefs might have a significant impact on people's interpretations. The writer of the article, Catherine J. Wu, says that each hypothesis that has been proposed, ranging from a spillover from an animal, perhaps at a Chinese wet market, or from a lab leak, lacks the necessary evidence to prove one hypothesis true over another. Molecular biologist Richard E. Bright tweeted in response to the piece, disinformation purveyor behind raccoon dog disinformation campaign doubles down on disinformation. Joining us now to weigh in is reporter at U.S. Right to Know, Emily Kopp. Welcome, Emily. Hey, great to be here. So what do you make of this? Uh, do you agree with Catherine's assessment that there uh, isn't enough evidence to rule out every other theory in favor of the lab leak? Certainly, there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to kind of the biggest scientific question of our time um, and the origins of the worst pandemic in a century. Um, but, you know, I think my issue with this piece is it's sort of a, a classic in a recent genre where reporters in the mainstream press who have done little to no actual investigative work to uncover the origins of COVID say, well, there's no information, no amount of data that could satisfy either, you know, entrenched side of this debate. So we might as well just give up. We'll probably never know. Um, after basically having done little to no work to help uncover that information. I mean, that that's your job if you're in the, in the main, mainstream press. And, um, you know, I'm a reporter who doesn't have the same sort of institutional support or resources. And I can count probably on one hand, the number of reporters doing real digging into the deaths of over a million Americans. And there's something very wrong with that. Um, and so I think we've seen this trend recently of reporters with enormous platforms saying, well, we'll probably never know. Um, and I think it's insulting. It's insulting. Um, you know, not only to the people who have been affected by this pandemic, but also there are a lot of great investigative journalists in China. Um, I've recently spent some time reading articles that were deleted by Chinese authorities and they're excellent. Um, and they cast a lot of doubt on what we know about the origins of COVID. Um, and some of these journalists are spending years in jail. And so I just think this attitude of um, it will probably never get enough evidence to satisfy either side is um, is really unfortunate. Um, so and I, I also think we should establish up front here that this initial Atlantic article about raccoon dogs was largely based on a single molecule. So one read of SARS-CoV-2 in one sample among 200 million reads um, and probably, you know, making it the most famous molecule of all time. But um, this second Atlantic article, which is sort of a non-apology apology for that fiasco, basically, um, to my mind, it's, it's really not, not sufficient. Yeah, it's weird to me that suddenly people are saying, well, unless you have 100% evidence, then you're not allowed to make any reasonable conclusions. It seems to me like most 
scientific experts at this point have said the majority of the evidence points to the idea that this did leak from a lab, which raises all kinds of questions about U.S. funding of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, as well as Dr. Anthony Fauci's involvement in that. And I understand that your organization has done some research indicating how Dr. Fauci tried to steer people away from the lab leak theory early on in the pandemic. And I think people need to understand the importance of this because understanding the origin of the virus could potentially help prevent a future pandemic of this nature, Emily. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's relevant to the raccoon dog fiasco based on a single molecule because two of the virologists who led that analysis, according to the earlier Atlantic report, um, are deeply involved with that controversy. They're under congressional scrutiny for possibly misleading the public on a massive scale about this very issue. Um, and so why we're still treating these people as, as credible and not kind of looking askance at their findings you know, especially when we don't have any data or analysis. And at the time when we saw all of those raccoon dog headlines, we didn't have any data or analysis um, to once over their claims. Um, so, you know, I think another kind of point um, of drawing off of what you said is that um, there's all of this fatalism in the media about not being able to access data and information, but U.S. institutions, including the NIH, were deeply entangled with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And, you know, our organization is trying to access information from China via the U.S. organizations that were involved there. But at the same time, I think that's where a lot of the resistance to um, investigating this comes from. It kind of has really negative implications for both of the world superpowers, the U.S. and China. So. Um, yeah. I can't help but think about the moment in time, what was happening in the news in American politics. When we saw the narrative come out, it was the first week of April, which I remember as Chinese spy balloon week, where, you know, all of our news was in hysteria. People were in hysteria about this Chinese spy balloon that was floating over the country. That is the same week that we saw mainstream media report actually were sure that this uh, COVID-19 virus came out of Wuhan, China, which was a big change in the narrative from, you know, we're not really sure where it came from. So it happens in Chinese spy balloon week. This was also the time when they were trying to propose banning TikTok as an app and say that China is spying on all of us. They're collecting all of this very valuable data, which is how many hours we spend watching cat videos. I don't know what valuable data is on TikTok or what spying they're worried about. And then they introduce this really big bill that's actually not just about banning TikTok for any kind of public safety against spying from foreign countries. It's really a bill that would give Congress the discretion to ban websites at their you know, discretion. Um, so we all have a vested interest in knowing where the virus came from, right? It's important for public health. It's important for science and humanity, but we're not seeing resources invested in it. Is the timing a coincidence or do you see this really as intertwined with the anti-China rhetoric in the United States? Uh, that's a great question. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I will say that the timing is interesting in another way. Um, mm -hmm. so the sort of backstory behind this is quite dramatic and fascinating, but um, essentially this has, this raccoon dog story has really distracted 
millions of people from the fact that the China CDC, the scientists who did the on the ground um, epidemiology and actually collected the data related to the wet market, um, came out with a peer reviewed report in Nature, one of the most famous scientific journals in the world, um, right around the same time, using the same data, basically saying that the wet market was a super spreader event. Um, and they looked at the same data that the Western virologists were looking at and said, you know, we can't infer an intermediate host and the pandemic probably started earlier. Well, if you've staked your career on the pandemic starting at the wet market as these virologists who were involved in you know suppressing discussion about the possibility of a lab leak in early 2020 were um that's a big problem for you and a you know i don't want to get too wonky um but if you'll follow me here basically a key pillar of the zoonotic origin theory is the idea that positive environmental samples taken around the wet market tend to cluster around these stalls where they were selling wildlife like raccoon dogs and is in this you know, Chinese peer-reviewed report in Nature, they say, you know, in fact, we can't um, conclude anything from that because we took particular care to sample the wildlife stalls and we still didn't see any pattern in those samples indicating that the pandemic started in that wildlife. Um, and so again, that's just a real challenge to the sort of mainstream narrative. Um, and it's, it's also a fascinating backstory. I mean, if you want to get really, really wonky, we can talk about the fact that these Western virologists basically stole China CDC data and got locked out of one of the largest genomic databases in the world because they um, basically disrespected them so deeply. Um, but, but yeah, it's just it's such a fascinating story. There's a lot of you know hype, a lot of faulty claims, a lot of. Um, other evidence that we can dig into that is real and not based on one molecule. Um, but it seems like some reporters in the mainstream press are acting more like spokespeople for the natural origin theory than real reporters. So I wish we had more time sense. to wish we dig into all of this because it is absolutely fascinating. But I hope people will check out US Right to Know to see all of the research that you've been doing. So thank you, Emily. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. A black half a football field sized triangular shaped UFO was seen hovering over a California military base for 10 minutes before disappearing in footage taken by 50 U.S. Marines in 2021. This footage has caused a fury of debate on UFO Twitter and here at Rising. Here is UFO investigator and documentarian Jeremy Corbell discussing the Mojave Triangle UAP with TMZ. Check it out. This is really simple. This is an active investigation. We're trying to crowdsource to get more information. What happened was there was, you know, these lights that were in the sky. And I first thought they were flares. This was two years ago. But all the Marines that I've spoken with said they could see the body of the craft. You can hear that in the audio. So they're telling me there was a triangular shaped craft. And you can see that in that low light image. So I've been doing my best to get information and I want the world now to kind of embrace this. There's a lot of talk if these are just flares and we're trying to figure that out. But all the witnesses say they saw a huge triangular shaped craft. They actually shot up illumination flares to try to highlight that craft at that time. 
There were training exercises going on at the time, but not on every night. So this is something that everybody's trying to figure out. What is this? What did they do? Here to help break it down is creator of theblackvault.com, John Greenwald Jr. Thanks for coming on, John. Absolutely. It's good to be here. Thank you so much. So I want to know, what do we make of this? Is it aliens? I think it might be aliens. <laughs> well, sadly, not in this case. Uh, I, I think that the UFO field has a lot of cases over the last quite a few decades that are worthy of, of, of a closer look and media attention. Sadly, I think at the end of the day, this one is not one of them. What makes you say that? Is it uh, an unidentified American test craft, perhaps? Or what is the explanation for what it is that the Marines saw that day? Yeah, so you really have to break down the story in quite a few different ways. But really, the nutshell way to approach this is what was going on at the base at the time in 29 Palms. And sadly, that entire part of the story was omitted from the original reporting. There was a major training exercise that was going on on that night uh, that was called the Weapons and Tactics Instructor Course 2-21. And it's a seven-week course, but when I started researching the footage that came out that was published on this case, uh, over the years I've learned generally something around or in a military base will generally have a military connection. So when you start digging into this training exercise, you realize there was a lot of imagery that the Department of Defense has openly put out uh, to the public over the last couple of years since 2021. It was not a classified training exercise whatsoever. But when you look at the imagery, there was actually clips of flares that were launched. This is all an official video, five uh, flares that you can see, which matches the exact same formation of the quote unquote UFO videos that came around. So there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle that you put it together, but when you look at it and you find a match like that, that's something that's definitely worthy of putting as a uh, viable explanation for this. And then essentially moving on to the next case that warrants a little bit more attention and, and investigation. So what do you make of the eyewitness testimony of folks who saw this half a football field size? I love that we have to use other metrics other than any system of measurement with the Chinese spy balloon. We were like, it's two buses, it's four buses, it's half a football field. Americans are not very good at measuring things. But what do you make of the folks who said they saw this black triangle in the sky? Yeah, that's another piece of the puzzle that we need to break down. It was stated that there's 50 uh, plus even I've heard estimates of 80 plus witnesses, which is all great. Uh, however, uh, what we are presented with are two anonymous sources in, a, in an audio recording uh, that we're talking about their experience. Now, I don't discount uh, testimony like that uh, outright. I mean, I mean, testimony is incredibly valid. Uh, but in the same respect, testimony can also be wrong. So we, it's, it's less about what we believe, more about what we can prove. And that's why I kind of lean towards, in cases like this, what can we look at? What can we analyze? And when you put the videos from the witnesses and match that up to a clear uh, uh, footage of, of flares and it matches, uh, that's what we can prove. Now, do those uh, Marines that have come forward, the two that were in the audio recording, believe that they saw something? Absolutely, and we shouldn't take that away from them. 
uh, nor should it be insulting that we question whether or not they're wrong. We can all be wrong. It doesn't matter about our training, our background, our education, our IQ level. It doesn't matter. We can all be mistaken, myself included. Uh, so again, that's why we stick with the evidence that we can look at, we can analyze, and we can prove. And in this specific case, that's where that that uh, flare footage really uh, comes in uh, to be a crucial factor to explaining this. Um, but another another thing that that questioned uh, the, another thing that I question is why all that was left out in the original reporting. Um, so I, I kind of look into what the motive is here as well. Why why weren't we told about all of this? Uh, why weren't we uh, given that as as a, a plausible explanation? Uh, sadly, that was all omitted. Yeah, that's a good point, because when we read the government's various reports that they've released on UFOs, they kind of give it this air of mystery when there are these types of cases where it seems like there was either a training exercise or perhaps a foreign craft involved. And I just wonder what you think their motivation is for kind of keeping this mystery alive. Um, are there really cases where the government doesn't know what these crafts are, or are they kind of playing subterfuge with the American people? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's a point that I really want to stress. The U.S. government and U.S. military has a, a large number of cases that they just simply can't explain. This one is being kind of muddied a little bit as being one of those cases. And to be honest with you, there's no evidence that it is. Um, that, that that's uh, completely separate. This is something that, that is different. But on the contrary, when you look at the military, you look at what the government is, is talking about away from this case, I don't think they're trying to keep the mystery alive. I think it is truly a mystery in some cases. I think there are incidents and events that the military is just scratching their head over. Are there other ones that are top secret military aircraft? 100% absolutely. Are there other ones that are foreign spy platforms and technology? 100% absolutely. But there is a small percentage that the military will even admit to where they say, we just, we can't put a definitive explanation on this. And that's what's intrigued me for more than 26 years now and, and why I run the blackvault.com and, and why UFOs has always been one of my favorite topics because after 26 plus years, you can't dismiss everything. A lot of them you can, and we shouldn't be afraid to do that. But in the same regard, there is a certain percentage that we can't, and that's what keeps me going and intrigued because the military as well, I think would want this all to go away. And I could bore you to death with hours of trying to work through the Freedom of Information Act and try and get information from the government that the military just doesn't want us to have. And we can see that secrecy. Uh, the question is why? certain parts of it are easily explainable. They don't want to give away all of our secrets and technology and what our capabilities are. I accept that. I'm, I'm one of those ones that wants to get everything out in the open, but can accept secrecy. But in the same respect, there's a lot of things that they're keeping secret about this that just doesn't make sense. And that's what keeps me going and realizing there is much more to this uh, than they want us to believe. I'm on the same team as you. I would like to believe the aliens are there. I'm a pick me when it comes to aliens. <laughs> Beam me up. Take me with you. That's where I stand. It sounds like you're saying Occam's razor, basically. Uh, the most obvious explanation is likely the one. And so if we know where the aliens aren't in the majority of cases where it's a, a training or it's a balloon or something else, we can focus on the minority of cases where we don't have an explanation. So that sounds great Bingo. to me. Yeah. Thank you so much and for coming And I hope we do on. that in the future, too. Yeah. We have more rising for you all after this.
A new survey on the state of American men issued this year aims to understand the realities men face today, including crisis, confusion, hope, and the pressure to be, quote, a real man. The nationwide survey from Equimundo, the Center for Masculinities and Social Justice, found that 44% of respondents report suicidal thoughts, and 48% said their online life is better than their day-to-day -day life. The survey found that 46% of the participants said a man should be the one to bring in money and provide for their families, and 41% said a man should always have the final say about decisions in his relationship. Also, according to Equimundo, two-thirds of young men feel that no one really knows them. President and CEO of Equimundo, Gary Barker, said in the study, quote, American parents and educators urgently need to promote healthy masculinity. Gary Barker joins us now to weigh in. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really thrilled to talk about this. Um, I talk about men's issues a lot because I think that they're kind of not talked about enough. Um, when you were going through this this study and um, came to the conclusion that men need visions of healthy masculinity, what do you think that looks like? You know, I think it's also important to say that, it, you know, behind all the really worrying statistics, there's a lot of guys who are doing all right and doing good things by their families and their partners and their communities. So, you know, I think um, we use that sort of clunky term, healthy masculinities, but I think a lot of men, if we ask them what good manhood means, can identify lots of stuff. Being involved caregivers with their partners, showing up at work in ways that they call out harm that they see, um, being connected in their communities and being voices for things that bring good in their communities. Um, lots of men are doing this all the time. There's young men doing after-school volunteer work and doing right on their sports teams, trying to be in the classroom the way they should. So, you know, I think mostly I'll turn that question around. If someone asked me that, you know, as a parent or a young person of kind of like, I bet we can identify this together. Um, so I do want to emphasize that point as well. There's a lot of guys out there doing doing the right things. I think they're encountering a lot of noise online um, that tries to push back and says somehow manhood feels under siege. And I think we, we in that moment of tension, um, we too much fall into kind of listening to the most harmful voices out there. When we talk about the, the quote, be a real man, what do you think that means to a lot of men? Because when I hear that, I think about the traditional role of a man in the family structure in a, a patriarchal society where they're expected to be a provider. It has this kind of economic role associated with it for me. Is that the general sense you have as well? Yeah, I think, you know, th there's both positive and negative in that, right? I think too, a lot of men do see that in a in a protector-provider way. Fantastic. You sh we, do we want you to do that. Be able to support economically, socially, emotionally, your family is a good thing. Being a protector, be believing like I've got a role in making sure we thrive in my community and my family is not a bad thing. I think a lot of men run into confusion when we say, hey, you know, women can do those things too. <laughs> Mothers, single mothers, co-parents do that all the time. And I think that's where men figure out or run into this wall of like, what am I if I'm not those things? And mm -hmm. where we find a lot of men see solace or find solace is in these traditional harmful ways of being men, that I've got to be in charge. I've got the final word. Violence is an okay way to resolve most conflicts around me, that I don't stop and ask for help, that I never show that I'm vulnerable. Those clusters of real, of, of, ideas about manhood or where we get into trouble. I'm not as worried about the provider protector part as long as men that we see that we do this together, not that we're somehow 
the only ones who know how to do that. But it's that harmful cluster where we see that men get in trouble. How do we support men who are struggling with mental health issues? I know it's a common refrain from millennials and Gen Z that everybody should just go to therapy, but I know that research shows that this might not be as effective for men. They're more used to channeling their energy into productive um, activities as opposed to just talking. So what are some ways that we can help support men who are struggling with these feelings of hopelessness and despair um, beyond just sort of the common refrain of go see a therapist? Yeah. I mean, maybe I'd turn it around and say, you know, to those of us who are doing all right um, and, you know, that we model what it is to say it's okay to say you're not okay. I think we've had, there is an interesting shift of men in prominent positions being able to say, I needed to stop and I needed help. Um, you know, sports figures, um, we've had a member of, you know, the US Senate who stepped away and was able to come, you know, just be very, very honest about the issues he was facing around depression and health vulnerabilities. I think we need to model rather than say, hey, men seek help. I think we need to talk about what the rest of us need to do for men who need help to say, talk to me about it. Um, yeah, talk therapy does amazing stuff and we do need more of it. We need better of it. We need it to be funded and supported so it's not six sessions and now you're back on your own. But there's a huge role that all of us have as parents to basically say, you can talk to me about it. Work, work colleagues, workmates, being able to say, it's okay to talk about it. So I think, you know, I think there's a huge issue there of saying it is okay for us to worry about the emotional lives of men. We need to make that safe space that men can show that we're vulnerable and our manhood doesn't fall apart, our personhood doesn't fall apart. It sounds like we have a sense, or as you call it, a blueprint of where to go from here and how to really reach men and repair this relationship. But a, a big problem is a lot of them are online and are in these kind of echo chambers. And we have yeah. a society where people don't have a strong sense of community like they used to. So how do we go about reaching men? Is that the challenge we face? Yeah, you know, it, you know, it's troubling that half of guys say that their online lives are more interesting than their offline lives. And I do want to be careful of, you know, let's let's not demonize the internet. I mean, there's all kinds of amazing connections that we make important political movements that happen, the information we get, I mean, there's there's all, it's a, it's a vehicle. I think with the challenges, there's half of guys, nearly 40% and above, said that they trust one of what we'd call, um, if you want to call it the manosphere, but again, that's a kind of a silly overwrought word, but they're trusting some voices that I don't think have their best interests at heart, that are trying to push them into a version of manhood that brings them harm. So I think we, again, we've got to have conversations about it. And it's not just starting at the 18 year olds, right? We know our sons at 10, 11, 12 are following, I don't even want to mention the names. I feel a little bit like Voldemort, like let's not mention their names, but if we need to, you know, you know some of the voices that I'm talking about online who are pushing guys down a view that says, you're in charge of a, as a man, get all the sex that you can, succeed, you know, including whether you've got to harm others around you to do so. We've got, to fig we've got to, one, open that conversation up with our sons, and second, rather than demonizing what they're watching, to say, what do you think about what you're seeing? Because even when they're seeing the harmful stuff, there's a lot of mixed opinions about that. Their, their support for what they see is not 100%. We don't just click on and therefore we become, you know, instant addicts or something. Um, so I think it's, it's having those meaningful conversations to say, how's that going with what you're seeing online? 
Yeah, I think that's really helpful. I know I've seen in Manosphere spaces some really healthy versions of masculinity, but yeah. also some of this really nasty stuff about women that you were alluding to. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there, but thank you so much for bringing light to this. We really appreciate yeah. it. And we'll be back with more Rising after this. The state of Illinois is deploying 30 peacekeepers in Chicago this Memorial Day weekend in an attempt to prevent violence through de-escalation and mediation, according to the Chicago Tribune. The newly created team of so-called street outreach workers are with the Illinois Department of Services Citywide Crisis Prevention and Response Unit and will be sent to Chicago's neighborhoods. According to the Tribune, Memorial Day weekend is a time of year that Chicago has historically seen particularly high amounts of shootings. This undertaking also signals Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker and Chicago's new mayor, Brandon Johnson's, attempts to address crime in the city, the Tribune writes. I don't know how this is going to go, Amber. They really make it sound like uh, Memorial Day weekend is a time for gang violence. Uh, and when I picture like a peacekeeper intervening with maybe a shooting that's about to happen, just like, hey, guys, maybe we could talk about this, we could work this out. But actually, it, it seems that in Chicago, people party on Memorial Day weekend, and they party in the streets, and there's street takeovers and caravans and drifting, like a lot of car racing. And so it seems that it's more, I don't know, people are taking risks. They're being a little bit more risky in their partying style. People get hit by cars. It sounds like last Memorial Day weekend was the most violent, with nine people dead, 42 people injured. And so they're going to tell people to take it easy, party safer. Just peacekeepers walking around like, hey, remember to not hurt anybody today. Yeah, that's a bizarre way of trying to crack down on crime. And obviously this goes beyond Memorial Day weekend. Chicago has an issue with violent crime pretty much every day of the year. I imagine also contributing to this, uh, I guess, increase in violence over the Memorial Day weekend is the fact that you have young people out of school, not doing after school programs, um, that kind of thing that typically keeps them out of trouble. They basically have free reign for three days. But the peacekeeper thing, I agree. I don't, I don't see how this is going to stop anything. Uh, one of my biggest issues with um, the defund the police movement was when they were talking about the idea of replacing police officers with uh, mental health professionals. And like, that's all well and good. I think we should uh, increase access to mental health services. But the idea of sending in a mental health professional to a potentially violent situation where they're going to be on their own if things escalate uh, is just putting them in danger as well. And so that kind of, this feels like the same kind of theme to me of um, not thinking a few steps ahead of what happens if things do go down. Yeah, I think in the case of like the defund movement, where it's like, let's take some resources that we give to the police and give it to like social workers or mental health professionals. I think that makes sense in the cases where you have a mental health crisis and a cop shows up and doesn't know what to do, uh, but the family doesn't know who else to call. Mm -hmm. I think that's a scenario where you should be able to call a mental health professional to come and de-escalate the situation because that's something that the police are not trained to deal with. For this, it's like, how do we get people to party safer? Is it sending peacekeeping troops to Chicago for Memorial Day weekend? Like, that's a weird vibe. Is it riot police by another name? Like, who are these folks? What is their training? What are they actually going to do? Like, a policy is only as good as 
how it's implemented. Is it implemented effectively? Are people just going to be like, oh, it's one of those peacekeeping nerds walking around. What <laughs> uniform do they have on? Are they in disguise? Like, really, I want to know the logistics of how they're going to implement this. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't understand this at all. Um, they they call them street outreach workers, <laughs> which sounds like they're not police officers, which is fine, I guess. I mean, I could see how if you have a bunch of police at some of these situations, it could potentially escalate things if you're talking mm -hmm. about gang violence situations. But also, are you making sure that these street outreach workers are going to be in a safe environment? Because if they somehow end up in the fray in some of these, I guess, riot incidents, you're basically looking at these innocent people getting dragged into the muck, and that's a shame, too. Are they from the communities that they're going to be in? Like, they're, they could be entirely lost. I think that's a big problem with how we do public safety at all in the United States. If you go to any other country, it's very clear that in a neighborhood, like the, the matriarchs and patriarchs of the family are making sure the kids are okay. If somebody's kid is misbehaving, someone else's parent will come outside and say, hey, what are you doing? There's more of a communal aspect to public safety there. It would make a lot more sense if the you know aunties in the neighborhood would correct the behavior of kids they presumably know and grew up with and said, hey, you guys, be a little bit more safe. Like, don't hurt anybody. If there was a community meeting where they're like, hey, every year you guys do some stupid stuff, you're out drifting cars and hitting people and doing street takeovers, maybe take it easy. Try and enjoy the weekend together. If you had older figures that are members of the community do that, that might be better than deploying peacekeepers from the Department of Services Citywide Prevention and Response Unit. Like, that's so disconnected from people's everyday lives. Yeah, and especially when you're talking about um, the potential for gangs to be involved, if you don't understand the dynamics of that community and where the gangs operate and who has territory, then you're basically setting yourself up for a bad time and you're only going to make things worse. And I think this goes back to just a broader approach to how we deal with crime in neighborhoods, which is that you absolutely have to have community, strong community ties, social services available. You have to have community centers, outreach programs in order to keep especially young people away from bad decisions and joining gangs. And too often, it seems like we just say hands off to those places and we allow broken families. We allow people to not have after-school programs where they're staying out of trouble. And you just end up with a bunch of lost kids who either don't have anything better to do or are struggling economically, don't have a father figure, and turn to these bad situations that ends up destroying their life at such a young age. I think that's a good point. The best response to a rise in crime is an investment in resources so that people actually have something to do after school. When I think about what I had to do as a teenager, we would get drunk in a field somewhere. Like, that's America <laughs> dying, for a lot of Dying teenagers. from a vodka yeah. overdose when in a farmer's like, field. my mom's like, how's the sleepover going? And it's like, I'm in a field somewhere, like, literally drinking <laughs> yeah. Smirnoff-flavored raspberry. It's just Ugh. not good. That's not a childhood. That's not a life. And there's a reason that people are prone to doing dangerous things like street takeovers and caravans and stuff. And it's because maybe they don't value their life so much because they don't have a lot going on. Why? Because we haven't invested in strong communities and giving people a, a real career path. Like, if you want to live in a safe society give people something to do other than street takeovers and drifting on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, it's pretty clear to me, but 
I don't think the peacekeepers are going to do much to prevent anything. I think, if anything, we're going to see some stories come out of this of some bad scenarios and maybe some videos of people recording on cell phones their interaction with these peacekeepers. Yeah, and I think if you are going to go the route of trying to keep order during Memorial Day weekend and you have people who have already gotten themselves in bad situations and are committing crimes, like Chicago does not seem to take prosecution seriously. And that leads to, I mean, the, the idea that there won't be any consequences if you do wrong. And we can debate over what those consequences should be. But if you aren't supporting rule of law, law and order, the idea that if you hit somebody with your car because you're drag racing, like there should be a punishment for that. And again, a debate over like how strict that punishment should be. But it seems like repeatedly in these big cities, the prosecutors don't do their job and they just let people who have years and years of criminal behavior with no real consequences back out into the street over and over again. And it does teach people that they're not going to have to face any real repercussions if they hurt others um, in their community. And I think that uh, leads to this uh, this theme of sort of recklessness and kind of doing whatever we want. Yeah, I think when we talk about preventing crime, a lot of people are not deterred by potential punishments. It's just not a strong deterring factor. Even when there are cases where people end up going to prison, when they're released, we don't see a strong deterrence factor from there. When we do see deterrence, it's when people receive education and training while they're incarcerated. And so if we care about our communities, if we care about preventing crime and violent things, seems to me that the investment should be in individuals, uh, in making sure that people are actually not recidivating, and instead we're rehabilitating them and we're making them change their lives rather than having this cycle of people coming in and out of prison. I don't think the peacekeepers are going to do anything to deter crime. I think, if anything, they're going to be people who are telling the police what's going on and there'll be just extra informants on the streets. Yeah, I, I'm definitely not optimistic about how this program is going to prevent violence this weekend, but fingers crossed that it does some kind of good because uh, clearly last Memorial Day in Chicago was a bit of a mess, to say the least. Yeah, uh, but thoughts we'll have and to, prayers, yeah. Yeah, thoughts and prayers. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it there, and, and we'll be back with more Rising. Governor Ron DeSantis said he's not a big social media guy. This comes after he launched his 2024 presidential campaign on Twitter this week, and that went so well. Congratulations, Ron. Here's what he said about that Twitter launch. I think given what Elon and Twitter represent to conservatives, given how we've been censored, I was censored as governor with Jay Bhattacharya during COVID by Google and YouTube. So the fact that Elon bought that and has opened it up, you know, that's been really significant because you can't have a society in which government's colluding with these massive companies to try to stifle dissent. We saw it with the Hunter Biden video that they censored. We saw it during COVID with all the things they censored. And so I think it was part of it was social media. I'm actually not a big social media guy. I, I do more. I would rather watch you than, than be on some app. But um, it is important for a lot of people. But then just the free speech component and how really this is an example of conservatives having a voice again and fighting back against the entrenched legacy media. The governor also had this to say about the Twitter announcement. You just tell us how that whole idea of going on Twitter first to, to announce your candidacy came about. 
Well, they were very confident that they had the ability to uh, get a, a lot of people, and they were anticipating a lot of people, but there were more people that tried to sign up than even what Twitter had anticipated. I was just in a room in Florida, so I didn't really know necessarily uh, what was going on. And so it, it, I think it had to do with Elon's account. They, they called an audible, and then they were able to get it done. But I think what happened with it was because Elon was involved, Twitter was involved, we got way more play about it than we would have if I just would have given a speech. It's just there. He's so popular. So many people were watching that the internet broke. They were overwhelmed. Got it. Got it. I just, this was such an unforced error. It was so easily avoidable. Anyone who has used Twitter spaces can tell you that they are notoriously unreliable. There's tons of glitches all the time. And trying to do it with 50 people is sometimes a problem, let alone the 700,000 that initially logged on to listen to Ron DeSantis. And if his concern was that he didn't want to give airtime to the legacy media or he was afraid that the legacy media was going to censor him, he could have done an interview like he just did with Erica Bowling or anybody else on Newsmax, One America News, Real America's Voice, News Nation, any of these alternative platforms. But just the Twitter thing, it seems to me it was like an attempt to just court Elon Musk and get him on board with the campaign, which is pretty transparently because he's this massive billionaire who could fund him as Peter Thiel does for candidates all the time. And the, the whole decision-making process to me uh, just seemed pretty ill-advised, I guess. Yeah, I don't want to give the DeSantis camp any good ideas, but that came off as so unlikable, just backpedaling, just like, you know, I'm not a big social media guy, I would have rather do it on here, but I like what Elon did with Twitter, you know, it's very, I'm, I should be honorable for doing this on Twitter because I was supporting this conservative, uh, friendly now news app. It's like, if he just said, it went bad, it did not go well. It didn't go as planned. That would be so much more relatable and likable than, well, we had a lot of traffic and I'm not even a big media guy. It's just like, <laughs> be honest for once. Just like accept that things didn't go well as planned. Yeah, I mean, self-deprecation can be a really effective way to get people to like you and to relate to you. And uh, that would have been, I think, much more compelling to people who all saw this for the kind of failure that it was mm -hmm. than trying to give this half-hearted apology slash, well, I wasn't really involved in it. It was Elon Musk's account. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not, <laughs> by the way, currying much favor with Elon <laughs> than it were, would be to just say, yeah, it didn't work so well. Like, mm -hmm. okay, you're basically offloading responsibility to his team, how do you think he feels that you're not taking any responsibility for this either? <laughs> it's also contrived and kind mm -hmm. of calculated. And I mean, we've talked about this before. I think one of DeSantis's biggest problems heading into this race is just his lack of charisma and his inability to kind of speak off the cuff mm -hmm. in a way where he just sounds like a normal, cool person. Yeah. Not a likable guy. He could have said, well, what's important is that I'm running for president. And now you know it didn't go well, didn't go as planned, but I am running. And I think this speaks to how fragile 
his ego is and Donald Trump's ego is. Because just him running for office meant Trump had his whole team working on making some AI video, which was a funny video. But they're so obsessed with their public presence that it's getting in the way of their actual political career. Because if Ron DeSantis thought for a few seconds, and of course, I'm saying this with the premise that he has some sense of what makes a human being likable, which maybe he doesn't. But if he thought about it and said, all right, how can I come out of this ahead in some way? How can I do this interview on television and say, you know, some things went wrong, but I'm really grateful I had the platform and what's important is I'm running for president and now I can tell all of you now. Like, yeah. that's easy. It's, he it's... also could have taken this uh, line of attack and this joke away from Trump by pointing out the fact that everyone already knew he was running for president anyway. So it's not a huge deal that the Twitter platform crashed when he was trying to do the space. Mm. He could have said something like, well, it's no secret to anybody that I'm running for president, so hopefully anyone who missed out on the Twitter space was not caught flat-footed by the fact that I was announcing today. Um, because Trump, his team, of course, was trying to file this lawsuit against DeSantis for basically running a shadow campaign when he was serving mm -hmm. as governor before Florida got rid of that resign to run law, or at least made an amendment to it so that he was able to run for president. So he could have taken the wind out of the sails of that entire attack line from Trump by just making a joke about how everybody knew he was running and, you know, kind of making light of the situation. Yeah, when people say Donald Trump has broken our politics and how elections go in the country and how campaigning happens, what they really mean is the rules of the game that were outlined about how you talk, how you act, have been broken by somebody, and that's the only training everybody else ever had. So now they have to learn, how do I be a real and relatable human being? Because I'm running against this guy who will say and do anything and actually knows how to connect with the public. Now DeSantis is in a tough spot because everybody looks like a robot comparatively. When you think about how people in United States elections who are candidates act, they don't act like normal human beings. There's a whole script you have about how you act, you shake the hands, you kiss the babies. <laughs> it's a whole, it's a performance, really. Yeah. They're actors. And that's why Reagan was so effective, because he was an actor. And he could step right into that. But I think now that you have to be a real person, Trump has the upper hand. Anybody who can do that has the upper hand. Bernie has the upper hand. And populism's on the rise in the country. DeSantis being who he is on top of announcing with the richest man in the world, not very relatable. Yeah, it just seems like politics in general is filled with sociopathic weirdos. Yeah. Um, and even some of the more relatable people still kind of have that trait. I think to run for office, you have to have at least a smidgen of sociopathy. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, Trump has just been an entertainer for so long that he knows how to capture people's attention. And when he was in the White House, I mean, putting the candy on the minion's head when the kids came to trick or treat <laughs> and he's like tossing the paper towels like he's Kobe Bryant at the hurricane relief. He's also not a normal guy. <laughs> no, he's not normal, but it's, it's like, okay, like that's what a non-politician might do in mm -hmm. those situations. Um, he's still very inventive. Like, I don't think I would have thought to um, shout Kobe while I was throwing a paper towel at a hurricane relief victim. But at the same time, it's, you know, that kind of natural sort of charisma and ability to connect the people, make people laugh, brings a lot of light to situations that I think is really needed in politics. And that's why people enjoyed it so much, because everyone takes themselves so seriously. 
and Bernie's like that too. Another person, Rand Paul, is actually pretty good at not being a scripted politician. And the example that I'll give is when he was running in 2016, he was on this live stream and he was getting questions from viewers. And at one point, I guess he didn't realize the live stream was still going and someone uh, asked him, if he was still running for president. And he was like, yeah, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be doing this dumb A live stream <laughs> with just yeah. like total disdain for the process. <laughs> and I thought that was awesome. Yeah, it reminds me of Mike Pence in Iowa, where they're like, so you're running for president? And instead of saying, yes, he just said, well, I'm in Iowa. Which is like, <laughs> okay, I'm sure the Iowans really loved that from you, Pence. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the candidates, being more honest is good, maybe. Yeah. Maybe everyone should try that. It might be better for our country. Yeah, we've got more rising <laughs> after this. New York Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had this to say on government spending amid the debt limit debate. Let's watch. Not only that, but they are accusing Democrats of saying we spend too much. For anyone that wants to entertain that thought, I ask you to think about the last time a person said, has said in this country that the government does too much for them, that their social security check was too high that teachers are paid too much. When was the last time anyone has heard or seen that? Thomas time's expired. I think she got the messaging right there. I think that's exactly what people think when they think about public spending. They're like, how can this figure be so high? I don't see any of that. I see our government failing to deliver public goods as promised. Our education system's not very good. Our bridges are crumbling. It doesn't seem like the public dollars we have are spent well. And that makes people less willing to pay their taxes, of course. They're like, what, what am I paying into? People like paying their taxes when they see the benefit of what those public dollars go to. So I think she makes some really good points here. And I think the argument on the other side is just, we're not doing a good job spending the public budget as is, which kind of feeds into the hand of Kevin McCarthy's case. And of course, it's a, it's a bad argument because Kevin McCarthy's like, well, it's fine if we keep these tax cuts for people with private jets and we keep these tax cuts for these billionaires and we have to really change you know, our budget priorities, but we're not gonna touch military spending. We're gonna cut food stamps and popular programs that people really like, like retirement. But I think there is a case to be made for we need actually more public spending on some public goods. I think the spending doesn't have to be higher. It needs to be more efficient. Um, because to your point, these bureaucratic programs don't do a good job of actually getting the funds to the people who need it. So much of it gets wrapped up in the actual bureaucratic system. And I think people would feel a lot better about government helping them if they were actually seeing the fruits of their taxpayer dollars. But I don't buy AOC's framing that people are saying that they uh, have never said that they want less government intervention. There's a reason why Ronald Reagan's axiom uh, about the scariest words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help um, was so popular. And it's because it appeals to this libertarian impulse among American people just because of the nature of the founding of our country and the idea that um, 
We are supposed to rely on government for things like a basic social safety net and public safety. But beyond that, we kind of want to be left alone. And just off the top of my head, when I think of things that I would like the government to do less of that affects my life, I would like the government to not be trying to criminalize parents for protesting at school board meetings. I would like the government to not be going after pro-life activists who dare to stand outside of abortion clinics. I would like the government to not add on to my mortgage interest rate because my fiance and I did the right thing by building up our credit scores so that people who have crappy credit scores can get a lower interest rate. That's not how that's supposed to work. I would like that the government didn't try to constantly take away my firearms that I have a Second Amendment right to have. So there's plenty of cases in my life where I see the, what the government is not doing for me, but what the government is doing to me, and I'd like them to leave me alone. Yeah, I think if we take away the, the public good proportion of the government, what do we have left? Okay, we have a military, we have a police, we have the enforcement of laws and a, a system of punishment. That, nobody wants that. Everybody thinks I want that a the, system of punishment. Well, the reason <laughs> that I think many people like a government is because it is how we pull our resources together to have things that make our society function, like roads to drive on, uh, like having schools. She talks about education in that speech. And what's really at the heart of this is so many people have said, well, the government doesn't deliver public goods effectively right now, so maybe we don't fund them at all. That leaves us in a terrible situation. That's like saying we have hospitals that function for profit and don't always do a good job giving the best care to their patients, so let's just get rid of hospitals. I, I just can't do the zero-sum thinking. And I think AOC hits the nail on the head with this speech by saying uh, we haven't heard this from the public. The public doesn't have a problem with public spending in the same way you're making it seem like they do. So what, what do we do? We raise the debt limit now, we fund the budget as it was legislated, and then maybe we actually do our jobs and address some of the concerns you brought up about the bureaucracy being ineffective. How much work that could be done by public employees is currently outsourced to contractors with the Deloitte Public and Government Service Consulting Division? Is that a good use of our resources to pay people fresh out of public policy programs in grad school to do the work that should be done by the government? I just think there's a lot wrong with how things work right now. And using the debt limit to have some kind of game of chicken to relitigate a prior budget is just a bad use of our time and resources also. I do think that there should be a separate conversation in Congress about how to reform so many of these programs so that they're done more effectively, which I think would probably save money anyway. So you would basically kill two birds with one stone. And one of the problems with the reason these uh, bureaucracies are so inefficient is it's so difficult to fire federal employees. And I'm not saying we should go through and just, you know, en masse get rid of every member of the federal government. But there's no question that there are people who sit on a keyboard all day working in some faceless building and never actually do any real work. And in any other type of scenario, if you basically had a title and no actual responsibility, you would be let go. And so I think it's important for us to make sure that the people who we're hiring and giving massive benefits to for a lifetime of service working for our federal government are actually serving the people that they're supposed to.
This is actually a huge problem. Um, so many folks will get a job in a department of like a, a state, right? Like the Department of Justice, whatever. Uh, and they won't receive the same training that maybe someone fresh out of school would when it comes to, okay, we have all of these data on inmates. How do we make sense of this? How do we assess our budget effectively? When you have someone who's 55 years old, doesn't know how to use Excel, let alone any kind of coding software, and they're responsible for data on all of the inmates in Rhode Island State, that's a problem. That yeah. creates the condition for now we actually have to pay consultants to do this because our current staff can't and we don't have the budget to hire more people who are new. So what's the solution there? We invest in more training of our state employees. We teach the old guys how to use Excel. Like it's not complicated, right. uh, but it's overlooked because so many people that are also taking public salaries uh, that are in the state legislature and state congresses and in the US Congress, they're not paying attention to these issues. Why? Because it's much more sexy to go on television and talk about the debt limit than to actually do your job. Yeah, and it used to be the case that we had all of these think tanks that would focus their efforts into dealing with the nitty gritty of how to reform these systems and offering white papers to Congress so that they didn't actually have to do this research themselves. And now uh, most of the think tanks um, are hyper concentrated in DC. They are incredibly partisan, and they focus on uh, basically trying to get media attention to get more donors as opposed to actually doing the work that they might have done 20, 30 years ago for helping direct Congress on how to do these things. And that's not to say everything tank is like that, and I know that they do beneficial things too, like the Heritage Foundation is currently getting together an entire staffing database for 2024 if a Republican were to win the presidency so that they can immediately fill um, all of these vacant positions because Trump, during his four years, had tons of open staffing slots because he, I guess, didn't think he was going to win. And so mm -hmm. he didn't have that list of names. Um, but yeah, it just seems like, you know, Congress, to be fair, can't focus on every issue at the same time and doesn't have the resources to do that. They only have so many staff members. They only have so many hours in the day, although they do leave work really early on Fridays, which I think is BS. Um, but somebody has to be doing the wonky stuff too, right? It can't all just be what's the grabby quote on television so that I can get reelected. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I fall on both sides of this, right? I used to work in like policy research in academia, but I also grew up working class and I'm the first person in my household to go to college. So I can see both sides of this where it's like, you want to find solutions to problems in our society. That's very noble. Thank you for your life's work. But if your language is not accessible to the people, yes. what's the actual impact of your work? If you write these great white papers and you give them to members of Congress who can't communicate them, maybe they don't even understand the language in the white papers themselves, no matter how simplified it is. If they can't communicate them and moreover, they're paid by lobbyists to do the exact opposite, what's the effectiveness of your yeah. job at that point? Like folks who are in academia who are potentially doing really good policy research work need to really invest in reaching everyday people, the Absolutely. electorate in America. It's a, a big crisis in American politics. So that wraps us up for today. That was super fun, Jessica. It was great to be with you in person. I know, and in our matching uniforms here in the flesh, make sure you like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So we'll see you next time.